Welcome to Inside Yorkshire with Susan, bringing you intriguing details about the lives of people here in Yorkshire. So, come on in and join us. Hello, Susan here, Inside Yorkshire. Now today I'm talking to Mike Sparrow again about his latest project. His latest one is called Able to Speak. It's an e-book he's produced uh, about safeguarding our planet. Now then, I'm interested to know, Mike, what actually prompted you to get involved in this? Well, uh, morning, Susan. The, the background to this, I've always been interested in the environment and conservation um, and last year, uh, in December 2018, there was a c- conference of parties. It was called COP24 in Katowice in Poland, um, which is a UN conference that is dedicated to uh, climate change. So it's where uh, governments, uh, scientists and, and those interested in climate change come together on a regular basis to monitor climate change and to take decisions about the way in which uh, the world is going to manage climate change over time. Uh, So that was happening and uh, I got hold of a copy of uh, what was called the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, that was the document fed into that conference as the basis for their discussions. Uh, And it had some really very alarming information in it. Um, Several years ago, the uh, UN set a target for uh, the increase in global temperatures over and above pre-industrial levels. And the objective was to try and keep those temperatures below 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels on the basis that beyond that point, there was evidence that catastrophic change to our climate that might be irreversible could happen. The IPCC report for 2018, for the first time, said that we might exceed that limit of 1.5 degrees within the next generation. And in fact, it could be as early as 2030 which is a pretty alarming statement. Um, The rest of that report was uh, A, complex, B, uh, couched in political speak that was designed not to offend anyone, um, but also contained quite a lot of gobbledygook that made it really quite difficult to understand. So as an average Joe, I thought I would set about trying to do some research and try try and understand climate change and the drivers for climate change. Um, And the consequence of that is that I produced this uh, short book. It's just 12 pages. Uh, It's called Able to Speak because at COP24, for the first time, uh, a seat was notionally allocated to the people of the world to enable them to have a voice. Uh, And that was conducted largely through social media Um, But David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough, ended up as the spokesman for the people of the world in uh, in that seat. Um, And I thought, well, uh, if I was one of those people, if I was that spokesman, having done some analysis of the subject, what would I say? Um, How would I address that conference? What What are the messages that I would wish to convey And if possible, what would the conclusions be um, that I would have drawn from the research that I've done uh, and the recommendations that I would ask them to consider? Um, And I thought I'd try and put that into as succinct a form as I could. Uh, I've chosen 12 pages because from 2018 to 2030 is 12 years. So I thought it was symbolic to try and do it in that form. Uh, I've called it Able to Speak. Uh, simply because it is an opportunity for people of the world to have communicated with world leaders about this subject uh, and the character that I chose to uh, address the conference is named Abel. 
as in Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. So mm. that's that's the background to it. Right. Oh, thank you. So obviously a very difficult um, to understand from what you were saying in the IPCC report. Yeah. Oh, yes, it is. Um, and it's probably the most comprehensive report that's ever been produced on on climate change. So uh, I, I wish, wouldn't wish to denigrate it in, in any sense, but it is huge and it's very difficult to digest as a consequence uh, and it is couched in scientific language. Um, so I was trying to uh, find evidence that is relatively easy to digest um, uh, and some of that came from the report. Uh, some of it came from other sources. So I spent quite a lot of time looking at academic and scientific studies, trying to find information that was presented in a readily digestible form. Um, and uh, th there's a lot out there, mm. um, if you care to go and look at it. The, the IPCC report is uh, published on the internet, so anyone can go and look at that uh, if you've got a few hours to spare. Um, but there are a couple of key bits of information that I think illustrate the problem uh, in a very simplistic way. Uh, the first is there's an organisation called the Carbon Dioxide Analysis Centre, um, which is located at the Lawrence Barclay uh, National Laboratory in the United States. And, and that looks at trying to track the volume of carbon emissions over time. Uh, and it uses, or it has used, a number of algorithms to uh, calculate historical carbon dioxide emissions dating well back into the, the 19th century. Um, more recently, it's been able to calculate emissions more empirically, and clearly as, as time progresses and science gets better and regulation gets better, those get more and more accurate. But in, in essence, what it sh shows, uh, and it presents it very nicely in a very simple to understand graph, is a very steady progression in the volume of emissions globally. Um, we're, in, we're increasing. Uh, absolutely. And it, it is a, it's a very steady, gradual line, and it only goes in one direction, and that is up. And if you if you plot it at today's level, then uh, we emit about 33 billion uh, tonnes of gas, of CO2 per annum. Uh, the uh, CO2 analysis centre then projects what that looks like going forward, and they've projected it through to 2030 uh, at the moment, and that shows 33 billion tonnes increasing to 40 billion tonnes over time. So there is no evidence of a decrease in carbon dioxide emissions, and the forecast is for it to grow and to grow quite substantially, and that's that's getting on for thirty percent of growth in mm. the space of twelve years. So by any stretch, that that's growing at a pretty exponential rate. the The second bit that uh, I found that's very useful is looking at the work that NASA does, and NASA approaches the same problem from a different perspective, and they they look at carbon dioxide saturation in our atmosphere. So. Th the, the proportion of CO2 as distinct from the emissions. And they do that through uh, a number of methodologies. Uh, one significant methodology is ice cores, um, but they also use ocean sediments, um, content in sedimentary rocks, tree rings, uh, and so on. Um, and in essence, what that does is uh, it enables them to plot uh, atmospheric saturation of CO2 dating back hundreds of thousands of years. Um, so, and they produce, uh, again, a very easily digestible chart that shows that whilst saturation goes up and down, the average is about 230 parts per million of CO2 over the last 400,000 years. And that peaks at about 300 parts per million and it drops down to two, below 200, 180 parts per million at times. But it's all within that range. In the last century, that has increased to over 400 parts per million and the rate of growth is exponential. Uh, if you look at the graph, it's effectively a straight line upwards and it shows 
uh, no sign of decreasing. Um, so that's using two different techniques to look at carbon dioxide from, from two different angles. Um, the, the other thing that NASA says is the, the evidence based on temperatures is that the rate of increase in global warming is about 10 times what it was in the 20th century now. So uh, th this isn't just increasing in straight line. This mm -hmm. is increasing in a parabolic shape, uh, and it's, it's going almost vertical now. The, uh, the third uh, area that I looked at was the work that's being done on the polar ice caps, and NASA are in, involved in some of that, but um, the, there are a number of organisations like the Antarctic Survey and so on. Um, there's, a, there's a professor, a guy called uh, Peter Wadhams, who's a um, professor at Cambridge University, who has spent 40 years of his life studying the polar ice caps. Um, and uh, he, he was regarded as a bit of a nutcase in the 1980s. Um, and he was speculating at the time that the uh, Bering Sea would have periods where it was free of polar ice. Uh, and everybody thought he was a complete lunatic. Uh, and whilst... Um, you can challenge some of the things that he's said over a period of time. He is now being proven to be correct. Um, uh, and um, the Bering Strait was pretty much free of ice through the summer months uh, this past year. Um, the, the, the other thing which is significant in the work that he's done is he's looked at the quality of polar ice. So the polar ice uh, retreats annually. Mm -hmm. And then through the winter months, it, it grows out again. Um, but the problem that uh, he and other scientific, uh, scientists who study this have identified is that the quality of the ice is diminishing. So for generations, you've had ice that's been there for millennia. What's actually happened is that through the summer months, that old ice has started melting. So that the regrowth of ice that you get in the winter months is actually much thinner. It's new ice. You don't have the old ice there. And the, the Arctic caps, as a consequence, you can measure, are not, not only getting uh, smaller in surface area, but they are also getting much thinner. Um, and you can see that also by the work that NASA has done on measuring sea levels. So uh, the... Um, the, the sea level has risen by eight inches in the last century, but uh, sea levels are now rising at ten times their previous rate. So uh, that, that again confirms the evidence mm. that's being done by scientists with, with the polar caps. Uh, and of course that, that has impacts on um, uh, global warming as well, which I'll, I'll come back to later as we talk more about this. So that's um, that, that's the, the I think the third element. Um, the fourth is looking at the oceans itself, uh, and clearly land absorbs heat, but so do the oceans. Um, and uh, we can measure that the oceans have increased their surface temperature. And when I talk surface temperature, I'm not talking the top two or three inches. Mm. We're talking the top seven hundred meters of the oceans have increased by an average of about 0.4 degrees uh, Celsius. But alongside that, they've increased their acidity by uh, almost 30%. Um, and that's because of the absorption of carbon dioxide. The, the oceans absorb about a quarter of all of atmospheric carbon dioxide. And as that percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere increases, obviously the oceans absorb more of that, but they're now reaching saturation and they're getting more acidic uh, and their temperature is increasing as, as a consequence. Um, and again, those increases are all, all going in only one, one direction. Um, so, so can I just ask then, yeah. is that's what's affecting, for instance, places like the Barrier Reef? Is it the acidity as much as the temperature change? It's both. It's it, both. It is. It mm. is both, and it it, uh, it affects exactly as you say habitat for marine species. Um, uh, if you look at the 
uh, latest studies on on marine species. There's uh, there's a very good study done by a professor in uh, a university in California, which which uh, demonstrates that we have now lost ninety percent of the large fish in the ocean. Uh, some of that is habitat related. Some of that's overfishing. Um, but certainly the size of fish now is diminished enormously. And you can imagine if you took all the large animals out of a wildlife, um, a, a terrestrial wildlife mm. uh, environment, you'd have a huge impact. Um, and about 40% of coastal um, populations of fish have now gone. Um, so these things are, are having a huge impact. Uh, and of course, if you lose that volume of stock of marine life, and you think that a third of the world depends on uh, its coastal fishing mm. for, for food, then it does create some real stresses uh, on uh, our, on sustaining our future mm. human population. Um, so, yes, you're right in, in, uh, in that sense, as far as the oceans are concerned. A couple of other uh, final high-level pieces... Um, if you look at um, average global temperatures, then 17 out of the last 18 years are the highest average global temperatures on record. Uh, and interestingly, the UK Met Office um, produced uh, a report last year. Um, and again, that was towards the, the, the end of the year, which was doing a projection of UK summer temperatures. And they're saying that by... 2070, we should uh, assume that unless greenhouse gas emissions reduce, uh, our summer temperatures will increase by an average of somewhere in excess of five percent, uh, five degrees centigrade, which which is huge. That's mm. an absolutely massive change. So the evidence, if you care to go and look at it, is legion. I found nothing anywhere that empirically demonstrates um, a movement in the opposite direction. Um, there simply isn't that information out there. What there is, is a number of people who contest what the consequence of that will be. And you could call them climate change deniers if you wish. But um, there is conjecture about what all of this means uh, and whether it's important and whether the world can cope with it. Uh, and we'll come back and talk mm. about that in, in a moment i guess quite depressing really <clears throat> um it, it's very significant in mm. change um I, I think there are windows of opportunity for us to do something about this from what, what i've seen what i've read um and what i've heard uh but unless we get a grip of it i think yes it is highly depressing it's extremely worrying uh, and it's something that uh, i believe in the context of other geopolitical issues at the moment, is far too far down government agendas. Uh, I, you know, I understand that we need to do things for today and that uh, people have immediate demands. But if in a generation we're facing much more catastrophic change to the, the planet in which we live, then we need to be paying that more attention right now. Mm, definitely. Yes, it's um, our children's future, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it's the legacy that we leave for those that we leave behind. Now, do you think that we've got any opportunity then to get a grip on this? Is it going to continue? Um, well, I, I think probably my first question when I looked at this was, is there any evidence to suggest that there is change that's going to happen that will help us to deal with this? So wh what is the... Um, uh, what's the demographic of the planet? Uh, what is the tra trajectory of carbon emissions for the future? And what are the indicators for that? So I, I looked at quite a lot of research in this area and, and I, I tried to simplify it down to some uh, very simple drivers that you could perhaps use as a proxy to try and predict what might happen for the future. And, and you can conclude for yourself <laughs> what that means, but mm. I, I've got a fairly clear view. Um, Firstly, I've, I've said that all of the trends I've looked at are only in one direction. 
So that suggests unless there's something in the demographic that's going to change, then we can reasonably expect the graphs to, to all continue in the same direction. The, the first bit I looked at was human population, because NASA will say that there, there is over 95% certainty that uh, the increase in, uh, in greenhouse gas emissions is human-related, uh, and that's being pretty conservative. Um, the human population at the moment is roughly 7.6 billion people. Um, if, if you go back a century and a half... Uh, that was only two billion. Really, that big a change? It's phenomenal. The, the growth, the growth mm. is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and just to underscore that growth, the uh, the projection for human population, uh, and I'm trying to remember what um, what this is. It might it might be World Bank, uh, but don't take me at that. But it, there are a number of projections on uh, human population by. Uh, 2050, human population is anticipated to be 9.7 billion. So that's roughly a growth of a third mm. um, in just 30 years. Uh, so if humans are the contributor to this problem, then a third more human beings on this planet in 30 years doesn't suggest that this is going to get any better. It suggests it's going to get worse by some degree. The second is that greenhouse gas emissions, CO2 emissions, have a direct correlation to prosperity. So where uh, you've got poorer communities, they don't have access to the same level of industrialization, to the same transport infrastructure, to uh, the, the, the same benefits that we enjoy in our homes, like uh, heating or air conditioning. Uh, they don't have the same amount of technology, televisions, fridges, washing machines, tumble dryers, freezers, mm. uh, all, all of which consume energy. So with prosperity comes an increase in energy consumption. Uh, and the majority of energy consumption is fossil fuel driven around the world. Um, and there certainly isn't the capacity to introduce at the moment non-fossil fuel energy to bridge that gap. So uh, if you look at just indicators of growth in prosperity. Since 1960, the average wage in China has increased from £100, oh, sorry, the average, an estimate of $100 per person to something in excess of $8,000 per person. Over what period? Since 1960. OK. If you look at India, it's increased from $100 to about $1,700 per capita. Sorry, what? What is the time scale for the hundred dollars, though? From nineteen sixty. No, no, I understand, but per annum. Per annum, okay, per annum. yes. Yeah, sorry. Um, now, if you compare that with other uh, industrialized Western countries, mm. by any measure, uh, seventeen hundred dollars or eight thousand dollars as an average per capita is low. Uh, if you look at India as a burgeoning industrial nation, then it is likely that they are going to continue to grow their average gross domestic income per capita. Um, and those two countries have got GDP growth and have had GDP growth that has been enormous. The last 10 years growth in China and India has been faster than any other time in their history, albeit that China is now slowing down and slowing down reasonably significantly. It's still going to have increased levels of prosperity. Um, so prosperity suggests more consumption of, of energy. Uh, if you look at transport, then let's take cars, car ownership as a proxy. In America, uh, the average number of cars per head of population is 0.9. So nearly one car per person in the States. Mm. If you look at China and India combined, the average is 0.15. So just over 0.1 of a car per person. Mm. If those two countries increase their prosperity and they aspire to compete with Western cultures like America, then it's inconceivable that car ownership isn't going to increase and fossil mm. fuel consumption with it. Um, 
perhaps one of the most worrying statistics is trying to gauge what the petrochemical industry think about the future. I mean, they are the people that are at the centre of uh, our carbon economy, um, whether it be producing uh, diesel fuel, petroleum, aviation fuel, or indeed the generators uh, themselves. And uh, the forecasts, the industry forecasts from the petrochemical industry suggest that they think that the annual value of their market is going to increase from 514 billion to 960 billion per annum by 2025. So that's only six years away, and they think it's going to increase by 40%. How then are they going to meet the demand of all of this? I remember I'm going back 20 years or so ago when they reckoned that we'd have completely run out of oil by now. So and there's no shortage of oil. There's no shortage of oil. No. It's in different places, and it it challenges uh, regulation around environmentally sensitive areas. So, for instance, in in recent months, one of the uh, one of the most contentious areas that's been debated is um, the coral reefs off the uh, Amazon uh, basin, um, which are, are probably some of the biggest coral reefs on our planet. We, we think of the Great Barrier Reef, but the coral reefs off the Amazon are absolutely colossal. And the oil reserves that are believed to be there are absolutely huge. So you've had uh, a number of major oil corporations petitioning the Brazilian government for drilling rights mm. around those coral reefs. Um, and they've been knocked back at this stage, but you've just got a new president who is a very hard right-wing president uh, appointed to Brazil. And there is every possibility that in the interests of growth and economic prosperity for his country, he will take the view that he will allow oil companies to consider drilling off, off the Amazon basin. So uh, the, these uh, previously very sensitive environmental areas uh, are probably areas which will now become potentially exposed to drilling. And indeed, in the US, uh, President Trump is at the moment uh, working towards granting um, licenses for uh, for uh, oil companies to drill in some of the last bastions of um, uh, of national reserves in in the United States and in Alaska. Mm -hmm. So that, that's all. In all Alaska? Quite yeah. Oh, okay. mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so... Let's take a step back and look at what happened prior to the 2018 COP24. Um, and during uh, President Obama's stewardship in America, uh, there was the Paris Agreement. And, and the Paris Agreement was um, an agreement reached between, uh, and I think it's 196 countries, um, that was a framework for determining how the challenge of climate change would be addressed. Um, and it required each country to go and identify uh, their national targets for carbon reduction. Um, and everybody hailed the Paris Agreement as the future mm. for dealing with climate change and that for once we'd taken a positive step forwards, there was something decisive that was going to be done about this challenge. The problem is the agreement reached uh, in Paris was not legally binding uh, and it required um, countries to set targets. It required them to identify initiatives, um, but it didn't compel them to mm. do anything. Subsequent to that, we now know that Donald Trump has pulled the United States out of the Paris Agreement. Um, and the U.S. is the second, second biggest carbon polluter on the planet, uh, and they they are uh, going absolutely gung ho for more uh, oil exploration, oil drilling in the U.S. So it's certainly not going to be a reduction in carbon emissions that we see from the U.S. Uh, Russia, as an example, um, said when they returned their indicative uh, targets that they would maintain. Uh, 
the same level of carbon emissions that they achieved in 2020 by 2030. In the intervening period, their profile of emissions increases. And in any event, by the time they get to 2030, they will still be higher in emissions than they are now and considerably higher than they were in pre-industrial times. Mm. So if you take those two countries as just indicative of the quality of action that's being taken through the Paris Agreement, it doesn't give you any confidence. Russia, for instance, also said that the target that they submitted would also be negotiable based on what anybody else said, and they reserved the right to amend their targets anyway. So I, I am not convinced that Paris produces any coherent action that is going to happen in a tangible way in a timescale that's going to affect this. Uh, and, and I think that's really worrying. Domestically, uh, our government's actually done quite well. Um, and because we've closed down a lot of coal-powered stations, uh, power stations in this country, our emissions have now reduced very significantly and arguably people would say that they're lower than they were in the 1970s. Um, but whether we reduce our global whether we reduce our emissions or not, there is still a global picture that we need to take account of and that our government needs to play uh, a part in. Domestic policy has revolved around things like the Green Deal um, and uh, the uh, National Audit Office, who looked at the Green Deal, have said that um, the take-up was particularly poor and the benefits that were delivered were absolutely negligible. So the, the, the domestic policy structure isn't particularly powerful either. Um, and then I suppose you've got to just look at the practicalities of this. You know, as, as Joe Public, mm. if some of the impetus for dealing with this uh, lies on us as individuals, and how, how easy is it to do? How, how easy is it to get away from gas or oil-fired central heating and move to something else? We looked at, um, and I, I should say, this places you in the position of being a hypocrite mm. um, because uh, you know, I've got a reasonable-sized house, uh, I consume a reasonable amount of oil, I drive a four-wheel drive car, but I live in the Yorkshire Dales, and in the winter, I need a four-wheel drive to get up a hill. Otherwise, I won't get back home. But I want to have a carbon-neutral car. Um, I want to transition from oil-fired central heating to something that is um, eco-friendly. But the quote that I've just had to do that is £57,000. And I, and I can't do it. Mm. Um, I've put... Uh, I've put um, uh, solar panels on the house, and that, that works very well. Uh, we're, we're looking at whether or not we can put some uh, moderate air source heating in. We're looking at whether or not we can put uh, solar thermal to heat our, our water. And we will do all of those things, but they cost a lot of money. The technology isn't cheap enough. Um, and even with incentives, you have to find the money to put the capital in up front yourself to pay for it before you get any of the credits back for that transition. Uh, and if I'm representative of the average person trying to move away from uh, a diesel car and trying to move away from uh, consuming huge quantities of energy in my house or, or oil or gas in my house, it's actually very difficult to do quickly unless you've got a lot of capital behind you. And the vast majority of people don't. Mm. You know, we, we need a monthly wage to enable us to pay our bills. And we don't have huge amounts of surplus. So if you look at the housing stock across our country, 80% of our housing stock is old. Mm. And transitioning that to um, uh, carbon-neutral housing is beyond the affordability of the people who live in them, in the vast majority of instances. And it will take a long time to do that transition you know, we may do it. We, when when it comes to renewing our, our boilers, we may go for something that's more carbon efficient. We may get more solar panels over time. We may move to solar thermal or whatever it is. But the majority of people will find that a huge stretch financially 
to do that? And what's the impetus at the moment? Mm. What is the incentive to do that rather than going having uh, a much-needed family holiday? So there are very practical considerations that lead me to the conclusion that moving the carbon efficiency of our housing stock is going to be difficult. Moving the carbon efficiency of our transport infrastructure is going to be very difficult in the short term. And you couple that with the other factors that I've just talked about, global population growth, increases in prosperity, uh, the petrochemicals industry's forecast for their growth in their market. And it suggests that the, the evidence that exists so far about global warming is going to continue to demonstrate the same trend into the future. I understand from all of that it's very, very difficult. As you're saying, most of us can't afford to put in to place what we know we ought to be putting. So what do you think is is going to happen then? Is it just going to get worse? Well, let's talk first of all about what the consequences of Mm. this are. And this this is a contentious area. And this is where those people who are, in quotes, climate deniers would argue with the science. Um, And I think there are a lot of people who would suggest that uh, when you walk out the front door, there's no immediate evidence of catastrophic climate change. Um, We'd rather like some of the warm weather that we've had this February, uh, and that's quite nice, and plenty of people I know say, climate change, bring it on, I'm going to get a better suntan. Um, So there's a slightly flippant Mm. side to this, There is also the view that our planet has coped with a lot of change over the millennia. This is just one more change, and it'll cope with it, and it'll find its way through it. Um, Can can I just ask then, because there are people who will say that we've gone through this before, mm. a long time ago, and that it's actually a roller coaster, and it will go back down naturally. Yes, People do say that. I I think that's the case, and... uh, if you look at the last 400,000 years mm. in terms of carbon dioxide, that's probably not the case, according to NASA. Uh, however, if you look at the catastrophic events on this planet, yes, it has happened before. Uh, it might have been a meteor mm. striking the Earth. It might have been um, a super volcano exploding. Imagine if Yellowstone exploded, mm. the biggest terrestrial volcano on our planet. Um, that would certainly change uh, our planet's atmosphere, but it would also wipe out humans, human humanity, <laughs> yes. and most of the biodiversity that we know on this planet. Now, if if people are suggesting that yes, the planet will cope, and they're happy with that, then I'm not happy with that. <laughs> no. I, I I think that's a, a fairly daft approach to it. Um. However, it is contestable how mm. how quickly change will happen and what the effect of that will be. The the scientists who look at this, um, and bear in mind they, they devote their life to doing this. I've, I've devoted comparatively hours and weeks mm. to, uh, to looking at this. These people devote their lives to it. But um, again, NASA would say that the consequence is thermal warming it sounds fans sounds fairly obvious so what's what's the effect of that with thermal warming you get evaporation you get evaporation from both the sea but you also get evaporation from the land if you get evaporation from the sea then you get uh, higher rainfall if you get evaporation from the land you get higher rainfall but you also get drought so if you extrapolate these things, you get uh, more storms, you'll get more severe storms, you'll get more flooding, you'll get drought. If you get drought, you get famine. Um, and th- those are just underlying consequences. If you then look at how those play out, then um, the predictions suggest that uh, river flow will be substantially reduced to a sixth of the world's population and that includes uh, well the that impacts their ability to irrigate land where they live and to grow crops and to sustain themselves and, and that 
that is where things like mm. like famine come in, not not just uh, through drought. But the the other thing that uh, is important is that scientists are studying uh, the polar th- uh, permafrost. Um, and a lot of the projections that have been done have not taken account of the consequences of permafrost melting. They're just an extrapolation of the existing uh, carbon dioxide levels. Permafrost is an entirely different issue, uh, and it has two consequences. Firstly, if the landmass of permafrost diminishes uh, and, and it's white, it's, it's ice and snow, you get less reflection of heat back away from our Mm. planet and therefore you get more absorption uh, in the land which heats our planet up which makes makes this even worse but you also as the permafrost melts release organic matter that has never been subject to the atmosphere previously and when it becomes subject to the atmosphere then you start to get bacteria breaking down that organic matter and the bacteria produce not carbon dioxide but methane and methane is 30 30 times worse than carbon dioxide at uh, retaining heat so as methane goes up into our atmosphere uh, the rate of acceleration of global warming uh, will increase dramatically Uh, and there is a view that this will happen from areas of permafrost but also from the areas below the polar ice cap where um, ocean sediments start to come subject to sunlight that doesn't currently Mm. permeate the ice cap so uh, that will accelerate it tremendously then exactly so that's that's the forecast of what will happen from a scientific perspective. We will continue to have this debate that runs uh, about the world being able to cope with this anyway, and we shouldn't all be worried about it. We should carry on with our lives. Um, I think that's a priv- pretty frivolous thing to do, and all the scientific evidence, I mean, mm. all of it, points to uh, this problem getting much worse. Can, so, can I just ask you mm. then on the on methane production? It's one yeah. of the things that people um, the move towards um, more vegan and vegetarian food for for people that they're saying that farm animals produce so much methane that actually by using all of the um, the crops to feed the animals that then produce the methane. That that's a that is a major problem, and so certainly that change in food production is um, is gaining popularity, isn't it now? It is. What do you think about that? Um, I, I think it's a really interesting point. Uh, I think it's I think it's extremely important that we deal with this, but for a couple of, couple of reasons that may not be immediately obvious from that. The the first is, as you say, um, farm animals, particularly cattle are alleged to produce substantial quantities of methane, uh, which, which will cause a problem with global warming. And and I think that's probably incontestable now. I think that, that, is, um, that is proven to be the case. Um, so a reduction in red meat consumption is de facto, therefore, a good mm. thing for the environment, for, for our atmosphere. Um, Chickens, for instance, produce virtually no methane, and therefore eating chicken is, is something that mm. you can go mm. towards if you're not um, someone who wants to go down the vegetarian or the vegan uh, route. Um, the The second thing, which is probably just as important, actually, about particularly cattle, is the amount of land mass that is required to produce winter feed for cattle. So statistically, if you look at the United States, 50% of the entire land mass of the United States is effectively turned over to rearing cattle. Now, I didn't know that. That's... 
roughly 20% of that has cattle grazing on it. Mm. The other 80% is used predominantly for feed. Um, and you tend to find those most productive areas for producing feed uh, around river networks. And to produce better quality feed and more of it, what farmers do is uh, to put phosphates and other chemicals on the land. Uh, and those phosphates leach out into the rivers and they run down the rivers to the oceans. Um, and you say, OK, well, what's the consequence of that? Well, probably the most significant example of the consequence of that is uh, the mouth of the Mississippi River. Um, on the Gulf of Mexico, and there is an area at the Gulf, uh, at the mouth of um, the Mississippi River, which is almost the same size as the whole of the state of North Carolina, which is called a dead zone, and it means that nothing grows there, literally nothing, uh, other than algae. Um, and that's caused by the chemicals, the phosphates that run off the land into the river and they run down into the sea and they congregate, they aggregate around the mouth of the Mississippi. Mm. Um, uh, they then uh, have algae that feed on them and the algae absorb all of the oxygen from the water and you have a dead zone because there is literally no oxygen. So you don't have crabs, you don't have any fish in those areas because they can't survive, they can't get oxygen. Um, and these dead zones are increasing all over the world, uh, predominantly at the, mouth, at the mouths of rivers. Um, there is there's a very interesting study on oxygen depletion in our oceans as a consequence of this. Uh, and there is there's an area of the Pacific Ocean which is about two-thirds of the size of the entire uh, continent, South America, uh, off the western coast of um, the Americas uh, and it's interesting that that, that, that centres on the Panama Canal and the Panama Canal is connected to the Gulf of Mexico and you do wonder whether mm. some of uh, these phosphates and so on are washing out through the Panama Canal into the Pacific and creating this diminution of, of oxygen which will have a huge impact on fish populations mm. uh, and our marine uh, environment going forward so yes you're absolutely right mm. to to raise that as an issue because none of these things can you look at in total isolation they all have an inter interdependence mm. so what do we do then well uh, and that that's the question i was left with having looked at this it's pretty depressing picture uh, all of the empirical data says well firstly it, it substantiates the problem uh, secondly, it suggests that it's getting worse. And thirdly, all of the forecasts suggest it's going to get no better. Mm. And it may, in fact, get worse uh, at uh, a much faster rate. Than we were expecting, yes. Yeah. Uh, and if, if you think the IPCC's previous reports were saying we probably had until the end of this century to deal with this problem, and now they're saying we may have between 12 and 30 years mm. to sort this problem it does make you wonder what the next IPCC report might say. Um, and I, I think it's going to get no better. So if you're faced with this problem, you have to recognise that the real problem is the concentration of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. And in fact, the only way that you can guarantee that we will solve this problem is to remove carbon dioxide actively from our atmosphere. So I suppose developing some means other than planting trees, which would help? All, all of these things help. And there, there are a vast number of technologies that are being developed and people are looking at. Um, there, there, I think the UK is now committed to planting 11 million trees mm. uh, in the short term. Uh, there's work being done on slag heaps to see whether slag heaps can be used to absorb carbon dioxide from, from the air. But they're all relatively small-scale things. If you think that we're going to be producing mm. 40 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide 
in coming years and maybe more, then you need to be reducing, you need to be cleansing our atmosphere and carbon dioxide on an industrial scale. On mass, really. Um, mm. And some of that you can do by uh, putting carbon dioxide extraction at the source of the emission. Uh, and there is some work that's been done on that with um, carbon capture and sequestration, um, which captures the carbon dioxide from power plants, for instance, uh, and it effectively bottles it, transports it, and then pumps it into uh, underground reservoirs. They might mm. have been um, previous oil reserves, for instance, which have been pumped out. Those sorts of things. Um, however, just dealing with it at source is not going to be enough. We need to take some of the carbon dioxide out that we've already produced. Um, one of the benefits is that carbon dioxide spreads itself evenly in the environment. So you you don't have to put a solution next to the problem. You can put a solution anywhere you want and it will still suck an equal amount of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. There's there's a very interesting pilot study which has been conducted and it's been developed uh, at a place called Squamish in British Columbia in, in Canada. It's, uh, it's a pilot that is um, at least partially funded by Bill Gates uh, and um, they have developed a technique for taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and producing uh, a synthetic hydrocarbon fuel derived from the air. Now, the, the, the important part about that is, firstly, it demonstrates you can pull large quantities of carbon dioxide out of the air. Secondly, the most important thing about making this happen is commercialising it, because nothing in our world happens unless it pays. Mm. Uh, our governments don't have the funds to put into projects like this um, on their own, certainly. Uh, and they, they don't have access to the technology, to the competencies, to the resources to do it. Industry has access to those resources. It has access to the people. It has access to the research and development departments. They don't sit in governments. They sit in industry. And you you have to incentivize industry to look at this problem in a meaningful way and to put cash into it uh, so that we can build uh, carbon capture in sufficient quantity that we can address this problem. We can capture at least the carbon that we produce and then we can move towards producing, uh, capturing more than we produce so that we cleanse our atmosphere and in time we reach carbon neutrality. That's not to suggest in any sense that we should stop doing the things that we're currently doing because um, moving to solar voltaic, uh, moving to ground source and other forms of green energy and transitioning from a carbon-based industry and transport infrastructure is a prerequisite if we're going to get a grip of our climate going forward it's just that none of that will happen fast enough no it just won't happen fast enough the one thing that we could guarantee if we put the resources into it is that we can pull carbon dioxide out of our atmosphere and we can deal with the problem but we'd need to invest in it and we need governments to be focused on it we need to be industry have industry focused on it and in order to do that you need a regulatory and a tax framework putting in place not just in our country, but internationally, that will incentivise organisations to direct their resource and development, their, their research and development towards this task, will incentivise them to put their financial and their people resources towards this task. Um, and hopefully they can take examples like Squamish and develop technologies that not only clean the atmosphere, but produce another income stream for them. Mm. It, it becomes incentivizes a, a complement to their portfolio mm. of, of carbon fuels because they can have uh, uh, synthetic hydrocarbons captured from the air as another part of mm. their energy portfolio. Um, 
and and who knows if you uh, if you aim um, at people's effort, uh, you aim their resources at this sort of problem. Industry demonstrates time and time again that it can exceed expectations. I mean, who would have ever thought that a microchip would get down to the technology that exists now? Mm. Um, who would ever have thought that um, a motor car can perform in the way that a Formula One car does? That's done by organisations who have a very clear goal, who direct their resources at that goal. They direct their res research and development resources at that goal and they come up with technologies that are market-leading, that are groundbreaking, that are world-beating. And government can do that by incentivizing industry to focus on it, by giving them the tax breaks to do it and producing the regulatory framework that forces them to do it. The other thing that I think is encouraging when you and I sit here talking about this feeling hopeless about it, is um, I watched a, a production by an organisation called Pakamama recently, and they are environmentalists. Um, and at the end of that production, they run um, what's effectively a credit list of organisations who are working to uh, try and advantage our, um, our climate, our, our natural environment, and so on. And that credit list rolls at the rate that any ordinary credit list might roll. Um, and they say that you could continue to run that for a day, and then you could continue to run it at the same speed for another three days, and then for another week, and then for another three weeks, and you still wouldn't have finished running the credits for the organisation's that are interested in and working on this problem. Now, if you extrapolate that by the number of people involved in those organisations or the number of people that support those organisations, it means that there are a, there is a huge global community that has an interest in this problem, that are trying to do something about it. Um, and I think that's reassuring. It gives me hope. Um, but we need desperately for governments to recognise that there is a short-term requirement for us to do something about this so that we we don't allow the problem to tip over beyond this critical tipping point in the next generation and destroy this planet for future generations. Uh, and I think that's within our grasp. Um, Paris hasn't done it. The IPCC in 2018 didn't do it, um, but it's there for the taking and the technology is there. The quality of our industry is there. The quality of our innovation is there. The groundswell of support amongst global, global populations, I think, is there. Uh, we need our legislators to do something mm -hmm. about it. Then. And that's, that's the conclusion that I ended yes. with after weeks of looking mm. at this and delving into academic and scientific research. And that's what I've tried to synthesize into, into 12 pages yes. of Able to Speak. Um, well, it's education, really. People need to know, don't they? And this is a start, certainly, for some of us. I think the better informed we are, mm. um, the greater chance that we have of doing something about this and recognizing mm. the problem. Um, and you know, I, I hope that people will find the podcast of interest. I hope that uh, some will download, able to speak. It's free, mm -hmm. so there's, there's, there's no axe to grind there. Yes, um, we just need to say where it is so that people can actually find it. Yes, indeed. I'm, I'm really pleased, actually, that having gone through all of this, that there is a little glimmer of hope at the end of it because um, I think it's not a good situation for us all to be in. But as you say, humans, uh, we we have the, the ability. We just need to actually put our minds to it, the people that can. It's the wonderful thing about human beings. Mm. You know, we, we demonstrate that we can cause change mm. and we can cause change quickly if we're aligned in our thinking 
and we act together. Um, and that's that's the challenge for governments. Definitely to, to do that. So, so let's see. Let's say then, where is it that um, anyone who's interested can actually okay. find this? If you want a copy of Able to Speak, as I say, it's free. You can download it from smashwords dot com. S M A S H W O R D S dot com, um, and it's available in a number of different formats depending on devices mm-hmm. people have got. Anything from a PDF to an iPad or and he has the other weird gizmos that people have got. <laughs> <laughs> and Abel is spelled A-B-E-L. Yes, A-B-E-L, yes. as in the name. As in the name. Thank you. appreciate the opportunity mm. to talk to you. So thank you very much, and I hope your listeners enjoy. Thank you. That's a Susan signing out now from inside Yorkshire. <laughs>